and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. Pod Sequentialism is recorded at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles on Sunset Boulevard in the west side of Los Angeles, not quite West Hollywood. Uh, Pod Sequentialism is also brought to you by Lovely's de Jesus Gallery, uh, the Soap Plant Wacko Superstore, and my new endeavor, Gallery 30 South, which is at gallery30south.com, uh, where we've currently got up the Torben Ulrich exhibition. Uh, Torben is an 89-year-old uh, painter, fine artist, philosopher, musician, and um, former professional tennis player. And uh, his son is Lars Ulrich from Metallica. And it was a pretty amazing opening, I have to say. But uh, today, which will actually be in sequence, the first episode back from our hiatus. Yay! And um, yeah, we're gone for a little bit. Um, first, I had to handle some museum stuff and a couple of highly intensive opening exhibitions, the Tiki Show at La Luz de Jesus, the opening of the Torben Ulrich Show at Gallery 30 South, and Mason had to leave town as well right as I was getting back, which put about two months, was it two months, Mason? Six weeks in between exhibition, uh, in between um, podcasts. And the LA Comic Con, right, right. So the, um, I was also not able to attend that because I was in Copenhagen with my wife, who was... Um, selected by the SMK, which is the Statens Museums de Kunst, which is their national gallery, uh, who bought one of her pieces of jewelry, and her show will be up there. It's called Art Jewels uh, through the end of the year. So it's very prestigious. We went to Copenhagen. Um, it was incredible. And I'm back in Los Angeles. And I'm back in Los Angeles with Stephen Peros. Pleasure to be here. Stephen Peros is actually a uh, a mutual friend of ours, Dan... Um, Oh my God, my I can't even think of Dan's last name right now. Because it's best you don't. He's wanted in several. Dan states. Madigan. Yeah. Dan Madigan. No, I got to tease Dan. Uh, Dan, of course, was a very popular episode. One of the first twenty uh, we had Dan on talking about his life in professional wrestling. But Dan is also, um, uh, you know, a screenwriter. He's had some films made. Uh, is part of the Masters of Horror crew and, and was very close with with Toby Hooper, who uh, we recently lost and. A lot of the other uh, classic, especially '70s grindhouse horror directors, but also you know contemporary people like McGarris and, and and people like that, and um, also a frequent attendee of the programming schedule at the New Beverly here in Los Angeles, which is owned and operated by Quentin Tarantino. And Steve, I believe you go to quite a few of I those do. screenings with Dan. I do, I do. I share uh, the seat next to him. Dan picks the seat, so you have to sit. Where Dan, he has this lucky seat. He just yep. feels like if the day he doesn't sit there, bad things will happen. Bad things are happening already, so I, I don't know why he doesn't just change the seat anyway. I would imagine bad things would happen to the person sitting in his seat, judging by his, <laughs> his size and temperament. No, actually, Dan's a very, very nice guy. No, he's a great guy, and i um, so glad he facilitated uh, our introduction. Um, I was just smoking a cigar with him last night, and he bids, gives his uh, regards to uh, to you and, and all your listeners, of yes, course. Yes, I'll have to give him a call tonight. Uh, although tonight is soccer, there's a soccer game tonight, right? It's yeah, his son is uh, it's this morning, early this morning. Yeah. Kane. Kane yes. is, that kid, okay, so Kane, we're gonna, before we get into what we're going to talk about, because I, any any excuse to talk about, about Dan's son Kane is amazing. So um, I remember when, when Kane was two years old, they were at a park, and of course, you know, Dan turned to talk to somebody who probably asked him a question or, or wanted to, you know, break up a fight between kids or something, and turns his back, and when he turns back over, Kane had grabbed two skateboards, put one <laughs> skateboard on top of the other skateboard, jumped on it and started skateboarding at the age of two. So it's a two-year-old kid in a diaper taken off on a skateboard, 
So um, he's got that Madigan blood for sure. Oh, he's insane in all the best uses of the word. Yeah, kid's great. <laughs> so now that we've gotten that out of the way, um, we've got you on because you, you're in the middle of a Kickstarter right now. I, I am in the final, as of this taping, 48 hours, and, and when this airs, probably about 24 hours mm-hmm. uh, of, uh, of a Kickstarter campaign. Yes, for my de- debut graphic novel, I'm a produced uh, film, TV, and um, a, a writer and a playwright, and this is my uh, first foray into graphic novels. And it's a an interesting, an interesting subject, especially for probably people who are in my audience, because it sort of tackles a little bit of horror, a little bit of steampunk, and it being Stoker and Wells. And so Stoker and Wells, um, I would guess, is sort of the conceptual cousin, shall we say, to League of Extraordinary Gentlemen or that type of thing, but also more along the lines maybe of like the James Blaylock and Tim Powers novels where they take famous uh, characters from the past who may have known each other or may not have, but had opportunity to have met and um, and throw them into a situation that is very entertaining. Yeah, I, I call it the absolutely true story of Bram Stoker and H.G. Wells, give or take 48 hours. Because there's <laughs> it's a 48-hour re- comic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there's there is li- li- little evidence of them actually having um, hung with each other. They were from different uh, generations. Mm-hmm. Um, but my story, which is uh, the first book in a, in a three-book um, series, mm-hmm. 64-page uh, full-color graphic novel, imagines what if a 20-something H.G. Wells met a 40-something Bram Stoker in London of 1894, and the two went on an unexpected um, 48-hour adventure in time against their will uh, and found the creative spoils of war that would become both man's first great work. Um, because at that time, H.G. Wells was sort of, uh, you know, screw-up, Millennial, a divorcee, could, couldn't figure out his life. Mm-hmm. He was um, he was going. He was brilliant, but he was going from one odd job to the next. He was a draper. He was a substitute teacher. He was writing. He had some small things published, essays, short stories. Um, oh, in 1894, he would have been still probably writing a lot of the treatises on mm-hmm. equal rights yep, yep. and free love. Absolutely. Which was what he was um, very focused on before he started writing science fiction. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and Bram Stoker, on the other hand, which makes them a good pair because they are not the same person. Mm-hmm. He's in his 40s. He's uh, uh, Irish-born but living in London, I would, something around... 15 years at that point, managing uh, the Lyceum Theater for Henry Irving, soon to be Sir Henry Irving, mm-hmm. um, the great actor of his time. Uh, and from three generations of civil servants, uh, Bram Stoker, in fact, his first published work is something like, you know, how to be a good civil servant mm-hmm. in, in, in Ireland. Um, but he was, he was always scribbling fiction um, and slowly coming into the belief that he was worthy to be a fiction writer. It wasn't in his lineage. It wasn't in what's expected of him. Right. Um, so I thought, well, this is an, a, a re- wonderful bit of timing for both man's life. And if I can tell a story and have fun with it, mm-hmm. um, if I can be true to the, uh, if I could actually uh, use the historical um, uh, accuracy as, uh, as an ingredient for, for creativity, mm-hmm. um, I can tell a story whose ultimate theme, despite being entertaining and scary and fun and thrilling and beautifully drawn, is also about stepping into your identity, is being mm. the person you were put on earth to be, right. and, and putting aside fears and insecurities, anything else. Uh, and so if I can do that 
with this story, I thought that would be that was what motivated me. Just to have H. G. Wells and, and Bram Stoker, you know, the lark of it, that'll that'll uh, wear pretty thin unless you actually create a thematic an emotional through line. Right. Um, so it, to me, that was the fun of it. And I think, uh, uh, so what I did was I wrote a screenplay mm-hmm. and, um, the, um, and the screenplay did well for me. People have liked it. I've gotten other work off of it as a sample, but no one was pulling the trigger. So I, well, before we get yeah. into that too much, mm-hmm. um, I think we should talk about the fact that one of the projects that, that did get produced that mm-hmm. you had written was Cat's Meow. It's yes. a Peter Bogdanovich film. Mm-hmm. Um, very well received. Mm-hmm. And one of the few films um, that Bogdanovich has made, I mean, overall, really, even in the last 20 years, but certainly one of the few that have gotten kind of universally acclaimed, that everybody enjoyed it. It kind of captured that fun and spirit of of that era of early Hollywood. And um, it's the events on the on Thomas Ince's boat. Yes, um, another forty-eight hour adventure. It's, I just re- I realized the similarities in, in uh, very recently. Conceptual um, similarities. Yes. <laughs> Hashtag conceptual similarities. Yes, although although there are no giant crabs on uh, or Morlocks uh, on William Randolph Hearst's yacht. No, what happened mm-hmm. was I was an eighteen-year-old kid at NYU mm-hmm. film school. I was um, more interested. I know I was I was definitely interested in production and, and that's what my major was but there's a certain minimum of um, history and criticism classes you take and a lot of students just take the minimum I actually indulged greatly in them and um, one of them was with um, William K. Everson a great um, film historian who's since passed and it was a history of silent film mm-hmm. and he would this is when they were projecting on 16 millimeter his own personal prints they had no sound stripe so he would be in the back this this British bold British man with his little suit he had a little you know university uh, uh, record player and he would he would be a little DJ back there because I he, he love those he, things he, he, those he, industrial yes, record yes, players yes, the yeah. Crosleys that never <laughs> die unlike the Crosleys of today which are yeah. kind of pieces of crap but th- those were incredible like solid oh and yeah you could, you could kick them across the room and he didn't want us to watch silent films dry so he would always be back there basically DJing and uh, so he had shown this Charlie seeing yeah. really right <laughs> yes so he had shown this Charlie Chase short and he said you know this was directed by Thomas Sins. Of course, you all know how he died, don't you? And all those eighteen-year-olds, we never even heard of Thomas Sins, let alone yeah. how he died. Probably and he said, "Read Hollywood Babylon yes, at that point, no. right?" And he said, "Oh, well, he was killed on the Hearst yacht. And it was all hushed up. You can read about it. It's out there in Hollywood Babylon." So it stayed with me. And a couple of years out of NYU, I was looking to write, you know, my next spec script. With my fingers crossed, hoping something would happen with it. Mm-hmm. And I started to research this. This is pre-internet, so I was, you know, going to library, doing things like going to libraries, mailing away for stuff, buying books. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it was just fascinating, the crossroads, William Randolph Hearst, Marion Davies, Charlie Chaplin, Luella Parsons, Thomas Ince were all uh, at, and uh, to me it was fascinating not to do a, a biopic where you run a race, birth to death, cradle to grave in two hours, two and a half hours, but can you capture the essence of someone by just spending a weekend with them? Right. And, um, and so I wrote it it was it was optioned and uh, i thought oh my gosh a couple of years out of nyu my first script was optioned and they flew me out this is great and it took 12 years to get made four different sets of producers later fast track <laughs> wow that's pretty good but, but i but the parallel to stoker and wells and I, and we could talk more about uh, cats meow mm-hmm. is that w- what i did then is what i'm doing now in a way and again i only realized this recently is when Cats Meow, it's just, I'm a storyteller. I want my stories told to an audience. Mm-hmm. And if I can't find one lane, I'll pick another. And so I thought, well, 
maybe I can turn this. Someone had said, you know, oh, this could be a stage play. It's contained location, all these characters. Like, right, and I, right. And so I said, well, I'll turn it into a stage play, and maybe that'll be the way to tell it, or that can also reinvigorate life into the film property. So that's what it did. So in, in a weird way, uh, so then went with Stoker and Wells having the same traction in terms of people really liking it and pulling the trigger, I said, well, let me turn it into another form of IP. Mm-hmm. And it, it could be a novel, would be an odd stage play, a very difficult one. Um, but I thought a graphic novel, and yeah. I knew people in that world, So, I, and I had not forayed there, which to me excites me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went uh, went that route, and so that, that's what we're doing, and it, it's been a fun process so far. It's great to, to see that there's, there's kind of a direct lineage between a realized project, a successful realized project, and um, a project that now is perhaps even easier to get made because you can go to a crowdfunding format. And we've done so many shows with people who have gone the crowdfunding route. And I, I, every time I get a chance to talk about this, I always have to bring up the fact that Kickstarter is now the fifth largest publisher of books. Wow. Now, they don't all have the Kickstarter logo on right. them, but that is the number one funding process for, um, for crowdfunding overall. Mm-hmm. Now, there's other crowdfunded places that um, aren't necessarily competition, but there are other avenues to be able to do that. So when you've got Kickstarter as the fifth largest publisher of books in that sense, that means you know number six, seven, eight, maybe one of them is a, a standard you know, brick and mortar publishing house. Right. And then the other two are other crowdsourcing platforms, which gives you in the top 10, a lot of available avenues to take a property. Now, one thing that I also think is really going to be exciting for people who listen to this is that it's always hard for people to find a way to break into doing what they do unless they know somebody who's done it. And uh, we talked to Tom Frank uh, last night. We recorded, it's actually going to run after two weeks after uh, your episode goes up. But we talked about um, that it's really only when you've seen somebody that you know have massive success lose their house (laughs) does it really kind of plant the seed into like, okay, you got to go do something. You have to, you know, kind of get up off your butt and and make something work. If you've got this dream, you've got to do it. And I think that that kind of puts things in perspective a bit. Now, one other thing I thought was great about Cat's Meow is that it's, it's maybe the only intellectual property that um, that's come out of Hollywood that paints Marion Davies in a positive light. Yeah. That she's been completely maligned because of Citizen Kane, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've read into her life, and I'm, I know that you did mm-hmm. when, you, when you were researching the project, she was actually a pretty wonderful person and was sort of like kept... Um, Hearst from doing really terrible things to people that we consider to be very good people of the 20th century because he would get into arguments and he was a newspaper publisher and of course he had kind of started the Spanish-American War and um, and so when you know the he didn't put pictures of Roosevelt in a wheelchair in his newspapers after Marion Davies said it was a terrible thing to do so she was sort of the conscience of this very powerful man oh absolutely I used to there's a line she says I'm like the sandbag on this big balloon. Yeah. And, um, That's great. And so, yeah, I, I listen, my, my favorite film well before, I, probably part of my attraction to the material was Citizen Kane. Yeah. And so part of my resistance was I, I don't want to go and just do, do Citizen Kane. So I started, it's been done yeah. <laughs> very well. Yeah. And so I start, but, but when I started researching and saw who Hearst really was and saw who Marion Davies really was um, and then Hearst's, statements uh, that that the story was not purely um, 
Hearst and Davies, Citizen Kane, was not purely, and that it was an amalgamation and an inspiration for his fictitious characters. Uh, he, of course, he's young and filled with hubris. He also was old and full of hubris. But, um, but he did, he was asked and did write a really wonderful uh, forward or, or introduction to the times we had a posthumous um, quasi-autobiography about Marion Davies, um, where he just really essentially apologized in print yeah. that that if if he was at all responsible um, for this image of Marion as some no talent gold digger because he didn't believe her to be that right um, and um, and she wasn't so that's when I thought well then there's a real reason because I remember the, the I think I got a hold of the the Robert Mitchum miniseries yeah. uh, whatever it was a two parter or something they did in the eighties. Um, as much as I like the documentary RKO two eighty one, I'm not a fan of the film. I mean, she's right. she's she's just an alcoholic crying thing in yeah. the corner, and and it's a, it's a great Melanie Griffith mm-hmm. performance, yeah. actually, but it is a a bad representation of who Marion Davies yeah. was. And then the more I researched her, the more I found there was not there was no one who said a bad word about her. Yeah, um, everything you're saying about uh, her relationship with Hearst. Um, uh, just before I got on the plane to fly to Berlin to be on set for the film. They were finishing a documentary. Uh, Hugh Hefner funded documentary for TCM. It was one in a series. And um, and I went over to the cutting room and I got to hear uh, uh, still unreleased uh, kind of recordings that, were, that informed what became the autobiography. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was some lines in there about my mother told me to marry for... Um, Something like marry, marry for uh, love fades. You know, marry for friendship and companionship. Mm-hmm. And I think that was very much informed her, and certainly informed a whole gen- many people from that generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do believe that there was um, a, lo- a love between the two of them. Yeah. Um, yes, it was. I mean, she was a fascinating, fascinating lady. If anybody's ever been to you know the Hearst Castle um, up in San Rafael, the um, most of the people who are on staff to give the tours have a lot of really interesting anecdotes about um, Marion Davies as well, and the fact that she she was the party planner. Mm-hmm. You know that this was a place that was constantly filled with people, and someone's got to organize all of that. And you can't be dumb and do that. You know, I know a lot of people who are party planners and wedding planners, and the people who are really good are extremely intelligent, but they're also um, very able of suppressing their opinion at the benefit of everybody having a good time. And I I mean, those times are not unlike these times in that there was, you know, Hoover into Roosevelt was a very tenaciously fought battle. Um, there were lots of protests, um, you know, on the mall in Washington. And um, I guess you could say it's just a bit of a shame that we don't have Marion Davies in, in the White House, <laughs> yes. uh, that we have a much more compliant companion uh, than perhaps Miss Davies was. But um don't want to spend too much time on, on Cat's Meow because you do have this, this new project. And But I think what's very interesting is that not unlike in the Cat's Meow, you've got a couple of, of historical figures that um, are mainly known to people by fiction, uh, some of it their own fiction, especially in the case of Bram Stoker, but also what people have written. And I think that if if most people of today know anything about Bram Stoker outside of the fact that he wrote Dracula, it's a line in Interview with a Vampire where he's referred to as a drunken Irish madman, <laughs> and which might not be too far from the truth, actually. But um, 
And then, of course, H.G. Wells and the um, presentation of him in Nicholas um, Meyer. Meyer's wonderful time mm-hmm. after time and the incredible portrayal by Malcolm McDowell, where he um, where they talk about, you know, kind of his real his his progressive thinking 100 years uh, before the time that the film is set in is, of course, seen as old hat because right. a century has passed. But honestly, here we are. What forty years, you know, after that film, mm-hmm. almost, almost, well, not quite forty years, but uh, almost yeah, forty they were years. Yeah, seventy nine, so just about. Yeah, so we're we're looking at um, <laughs> kind of, you know, um, regression back to you know he would still be novel like like yeah. his ideas from from the 18 uh 1880s at least uh would be um still kind of um you know at the front of of progressive thinking a lot because so much has changed so when you're approaching a project like this and it's it's takes place in the past you're probably going to grab contemporary ideas and use it as as a bit of a parable. So what were some of the things that you pulled from either the current state of affairs in the world or in America or in fiction? What were the areas that really informed where the direction behind the storytelling is? Well, I mean, I, I started with the two men. And mm-hmm. to me, uh, I, I can't put um, theme... F- I don't put... some people, Some writers do put theme first. To me, uh, the creative process is what gets my juices flowing for, right. for reasons maybe inexplicable. Right. You know, and Billy Wilder had some sort of quote where he said, uh, once I figured out what a Billy Wilder film was, it was harder to make them. Yeah. And so... Uh, Two days in a row, yeah. we talked about Billy Wilder. I'm <laughs> loving this. I'm going to try and push this streak. It's great. So for me, I always start with character, what gets me leaning in to the keyboard to, to type. Mm-hmm. Um, and just go with that. Then I look back on it and see what I've done. Yeah. And so, um, and and that's where again I didn't set out to do a story about men, uh, two two people coming into their identity, um, and overcoming fear to be the person they were. Um, but I thought I I started to, I saw that that's what what I went into. Um, mm-hmm. to me it was just fascinating. Well, it, it kind of goes to why I said I really wanted to dive into Cat's Meow because no one had really done it right. Right. Um, and, and I, too, love time after time. And when I, when, one of the interesting things, when you go from outline to screenplay, because it was a screenplay first, you, you know, you think you're all ready, you have your outline, you start writing, go, oh, now I'm writing dialogue. Oh, I don't know how people addressed H.G. Wells. Yeah. Uh, uh, I can theorize, but let me do some research on that. I went, oh, you know what? I'm Nicholas Myers, a brilliant guy, very educated, huge historian. I said, I'll pop in time after time and see how they address him. And what was fascinating to me is that he, he has the year come up on the screen mm-hmm. and it was about one year on one side or the other of, I think maybe a year earlier than mine takes place. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, wow, this is fascinating. And suddenly I see H.G. Wells in a lovely, well-appointed home living alone, mm-hmm. having, you know, very, you know, having servants and guests over and... <laughs> And I'm sitting there going, oh my this God. Can't possibly this, be this real. Wouldn't, I mean, he is single, <laughs> yeah. so that's accurate. And yeah. he is slim, which is accurate. And I said, this, oh my God. This, I, and I said, at this time, and they, I don't know, they have abolished, they have since abolished the uh, comments uh, section from IMDb because people were getting cruel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was probably some studio or particular filmmakers or actors said, you know, threatened lawsuits. But 
at that time when I was first researching it, it was there. I said, oh, I'm sure I'm going to see huge threads about inaccuracy about H.G. Wells. Mm -hmm. Not a one. Yeah. But there are huge threads about inaccuracy about Jack, Jack the, Ripper, the Ripper, the character who we, who, who, who we do not know anything about yes. the actual accuracy. I'm like, that's that's what they're saying. I said, wow. The Nicholas danger of any Jack the Ripper movie, right, you know, I is that a new theory develops <laughs> two hours after the movie goes into production. Well, and that's the thing. I said, wow, Nicholas Meyer is actually the smartest person yeah. because he said, mm, I need my wells to be X, Y, and Z for, for yep. the purposes of my story. He needs to have the means to build his own time machine. Yeah, narrative. And, yeah. um, um, and I'm pretty sure no one's going to give a crap. And he was right. And yeah. so we're looking back. Uh, then I was looking, whatever, 37 years later, 35 years uh, And not not one person said, you know, Wells couldn't have, uh, he wouldn't have been able to afford. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. He wasn't even, didn't even have his own home like yeah. this. Uh, he was living off of. I mean, you look at Robert Louis Stevenson, yeah. who was arguably an incredibly successful writer who was still broke. Yeah. You know, constantly. Well, look, uh, Dracula um, in, uh, you know, uh, unlike Wells, Stoker was not very prolific, right? And um, and even though Dracula was a deemed a success, and even in his lifetime was um, uh, published in several languages, he still stayed on with his day job yeah. as, as manager of the Lyceum Theater. And and towards the end of his life, he downsized. He was not living off of riches. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until and the book continued to be well known and published. But it, it the the reason I am even wearing a Dracula T-shirt right now and why his name is in the zeitgeist is because of Hollywood yeah. and it started with the Broadway play from uh, the like very very late nineteen twenties and then uh, and then the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Nosferatu oh, first for, in well, <laughs> Germany, which did not get paid, he did not get paid for. No, kicked off a lawsuit with the publisher. Well, it started with Mrs. Stoker. Oh wow! Uh, Mrs. Stoker was very protective of her husband's yeah. legacy, and suddenly she receives this uh, anonymous envelope with a program from Berlin. Uh, from a week or two earlier um, about a premiere of a movie called Nosferatu mm -hmm. with, quote, freely adapted yes. by the brand. I mean, that's how ballsy FW yeah. Renaud, the industry was. For, freely adapted from Dracula. It's like, and why they thought it could be freely adapted? Well, she she um, went after them, uh, won, mm -hmm. and part of the terms of, of uh, the lawsuit was all copies and negatives of Nosferatu's FW Murnau's Nosferatu had to be destroyed. Fortunately, some wise people kept prints of it. Wow. And so that is why it exists today. But I mean, this is what's fascinating. Why, and I've always found it funny, even as a kid, yeah. when people bicker and quarrel about, well, you can't do that. Vampires can't blah, blah, blah. Or you can't do that. Werewolves can't blah, 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 blah. Or zombies yeah. aren't. Like, well, this is ridiculous because I'm like, these are, these are made, up. made up creations. <laughs> and the ground rules change. For instance, yeah. um, Dracula in the novel does not sleep in a coffin. He sleeps in boxes of earth. It was right. the movies, and I think the stage show first, created this conceit because it's prettier and cooler yeah. if he rises from a coffin. This whole notion that he will disintegrate um, with the first rays of the sun comes from Nosferatu. Right. In the novel, it's just uh, the maybe the most re biggest reference to it is along the lines of he likes to stay out of the sunlight. Yeah. We see no e evidence that he will actually be killed right. if exposed to it. But that they did that at, at the end of Nosferatu. Spoiler alert, sorry if you haven't seen the 1922 Nosferatu. Yeah. You should have. Turns into uh, the sunlight, grabs yeah. his chest, tilts his head yeah. back, and disappears. And this whole notion of... Um, 
uh, uh, yes, a cough, the boxes of earth, that, that he was killed with a stake through the heart by, by Dr. Van Helsing. That's not how he perishes yeah. in the book. That I won't tell you. You have to read it. Um, but it was, it's well, fascinating. Well, have seen Coppola's version? <laughs> Again, this whole notion of that, oh, the Coppola, you know, is the, is the, is the, is the closest adaptation. Like, oh, have you, have you read the book? No, 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 but it's the closest adaptation. No, the, uh, the Jack Palance made-for-TV movie the, the, is two very close, the, and the Christopher Lee. Lee, not, not as much, but I'll tell you what, the other TV version is the BBC. The Franco with, one with Lee. Lee. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also one of the dullest versions. Yeah, it's but, pretty uh, <laughs> but But the uh, Louis Jordan BBC two-part. right. Is actually the the closest. I used to, the to have book. that on Laserdisc. Oh, it's it, it's really yeah. exceptional. Um, if anyone just wants to see a really fantastic version of uh, which you universally um, believed by by people who are who are real fans of the character, um, but the Plants one as well. Yeah. But one of the things that even the Plants does that is really not in the book that people think is part of it is this whole thing of the lost love that he is searching for yeah. that Mina represents and. Um, it's really, it's not there. She's a great character actually yeah. in the book. She's a strong character, but this whole seduction of her is not really there. Right. And so he is, he is a sad uh, character haunted. We get a sense of romance from him. So bringing that into the character, which for some reason Hammer chose not to do, uh, even though I love the Hammer films, yeah. I always think it's so odd. I was watching Scream, Blackula, Scream. Yeah. And I said, why couldn't, well, I couldn't Hammer do what AIP was able yeah. to do and figure out how to make Dracula the star of a Dracula movie. Yeah. And in all of the Drac uh, the Stoker Dracula, I mean, the Hammer Draculas, um, he is essentially a supporting character. Yeah. Um, and yet I love them and watch them over and over. There's <laughs> the idea, of course, well, you know, that um, that what the monster can't be the star. Mm -hmm. I mean, even in King Kong, you know, Fay Ray is, right. is the star. And... Um, what I thought was great about the Hammer films, of course, the first time you see Red Blood. Yeah. Oh, know, I, I, that's the bold first shot of, yeah. of Dracula. And then, of course, we talked about Malcolm McDowell in Clockwork Orange when he's having the fantasy sequence. You know, um, he, he pictures himself as basically that version of Dracula, almost shot for shot of the pose of that first reveal right. of Christopher Lee, where he's got fangs and yeah. there's blood on his face and totally fits within that 1970s um setting for for a clockwork orange for burgess's novel the um another interesting thing about this and of course we've just seen a mummy movie which is really bram stoker's <laughs> mummy story yes. i mean like yeah. exactly yes. it's it's so like completely adapted and his name is nowhere yeah. you know yeah. in that film uh, well, I, now, it, now, it, now it is technically. You, Mrs. Stoker couldn't go after you at this point because they are technically PD. Years, yeah. um, but they should have acknowledged it for yeah, sure. Yeah, I think so. And I think especially since Universal is, well, I guess they've just finally stepped back from the dark universe. I'm, I'm air quoting. No one can see this on, <laughs> on the podcast. But the dark universe, uh, Universal's you know version to do a kind of Marvel or DC thing this, fell apart. This like, is a cause right to celebrate. This is a cause to celebrate. I, I, I am. I grew up. My first love is Universal horror films. Mm -hmm. um, I, I always love when uh, when the studio starts selling things that. Um, uh, whether even at the theme park or or when they put out that great set of of, of DVDs and Blu-rays, mm -hmm. um, those legacy turning, editions, yeah, yeah, but but turning them into superheroes is just uh, it's just it's a disservice. Uh, and uh, in theory, 
but when it was in the planning stage, I thought this is just not going to work. This is mm-hmm. not why people like these characters. It will, and also it's obviously a disservice not only to the the the, the literary creations that, uh, and, but but also the cinematic legacy of the series. But I went there with high hopes. Yeah. And uh, and I said this movie is a train wreck. And I said, I mean, uh, and the only thing keep it, keeping it going for me is I do believe Tom Cruise has 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 real movie. One of the few people has real movie star charisma. Natural charisma. Yeah. And. Uh, uh, and um, and it moved fast, and occasionally I saw re- 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 uh, more references to Life Force than I ever thought any movie would actually have. I know, but see, I love Life Force. <laughs> I it's do so too. Like, yeah. I love it. But it somehow they didn't make it. the movie was better in me. T- it sounded so good when I was telling someone about yeah. it, and I had to dial it back, saying, "No, no, no, it actually it's not just, that. It's, it's not, not that, good. that." But but I said, "Here's a movie." Where they uh, and a series where they bragged about bringing this brain trust in, and I'm sure they're all wonderful fellows and ladies. Yeah. I hope they had some ladies there um, to figure out what will be, you know, this 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 sort of lineage of how we're going to work this this dark yeah. universe. And so they, the first movie out of the gate, they have the mummy, who's not the mummy, but is the mummy, right? And yeah. then they have a character, and they go, "Oh, here they're introducing another one, not really from the universal canon, but who cares." Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah. I said, okay, well, they spent over $100 million on this film. Okay, well, let's see what they... And the best they could come up with for Mr. Hyde is to have poor Russell Crowe go from being proper English to Cockney and do some strange purple CGI effects on his face. Really? I, I, I can point to... 100% of every movie made about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde has a better makeup. I don't even yeah. ones I haven't seen have yeah. a better representation of Mr. Hyde than the, I mean and the, of course the, the classic whole... one the Barrymore he just yeah. juts his chin out. Yeah. There is no makeup. He messes up his hair and juts his chin out and you get the yeah. sense of it, you know that I just I was stunned. I said if this is if this is where the level of imagination is going to go for this series. Yeah. Uh, I hope it, they don't make another one. And so unfortunately I'm sure Bride of Frankenstein would have been a, a vast improvement mm-hmm. i'd be interested to read what script what was the uh, the production script they were working on before they abruptly canceled it and i think bill condon was a uh, is a good director and an interesting choice mm-hmm. but uh but it's gone and yeah. uh and, and for for me actually an effective reboot which no one seemed to show up for was the Wolfman the the uh it was a little too <laughs> ponderous it was a little too long but it had atmosphere it had atmosphere it was it was a fusion uh because the, the everyone there loved universal films everyone there loved hammer films yeah and really when you watch it it is sort of this this unholy union of a universal and a hammer horror film yeah. um uh, and and I just you know I I, uh, I I saw it in the theater, but then the version that has since come out on Blu-ray and DVD is uncut, so it's even more l- lurid. And, uh, yeah. and I've grown to actually like it a lot. And 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 I think Anthony Hopkins is is it, p- people kind of dismissed it as some sort of phoned-in performance. When you watch it, you realize he's just in a really dark place. Yeah, <laughs> when he's yeah. playing this part of the, <laughs> a man who's surrendered to how horrible a man he is and is just living with it on autopilot. Yeah. Um, uh, so I've grown to like the film more and I, and I just like seeing the monster like running Wolf around. <laughs> as a parable about advertising. I always you want know. to like Wolf. I love... It's Mike, not a good Mike, Wolfman yeah, yeah, movie, yeah. but it's a great kind of... It's almost like Catch-22 yeah. in that it's this subversively funny movie about the advertising world. And anybody who's ever worked in advertising yeah. who sees Wolf, they're like, oh, I love Wolf. And horror fans are like, that movie's terrible. Yeah. It's like, well, it's really not a horror movie. <laughs> well, it's schizophrenic, not in a good way. I love yeah. mixing tones. Um, I always t- 
I always hate when people are knee-jerk saying, you know, you got to pick a lane. I'm like, well, if it works without picking yeah. a lane. But the strange thing about that movie is this movie about the the uh, advertising industry and um, uh, and then suddenly there were these werewolf scenes that are this kind of right out of the, the 80s. Uh, yeah. and, and I'm like, well, I don't get it. I mean, I read that You almost great... wish they'd, they'd watch yeah. their Barachuk, you know, yeah. and were like, and made it as ridiculous yeah. as his Beauty and the Beast, you know. And he seems to be, uh, and Nichols seems to be... Uh, f- Sort of, uh, we're saying Mike Nichols. Michael, he's he's yeah. not missing this and yeah. saying Jack Nichols. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's talking about Mike Nichols, yeah, the Mike, director. M- Mike Nichols doesn't seem to. Uh, he doesn't seem very inspired by the horror sequence. Not at all. And I mean, so the, what did they yeah, see in his yeah. oeuvre <laughs> that was like, you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna redo all these these uh, universal horror movies, and we've got Francis Ford Coppola yeah. on on deck for uh, for Dracula, and then we're gonna get Kenneth Branagh to do. Yeah. Mary Shelley, air quoting again, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. <laughs> I don't know which version of that he read. Yeah. And um, and then the next Mike Nichols is going to do the yeah. Wolfman. And you're kind of like, oh, Jack Nicholson would be a great Wolfman yeah. because he's kind of a nut, you <laughs> yeah. know, and, and you could get really fun with that. And it's a shame when Teen Wolf is kind of a better <laughs> Wolfman movie than Wolf is, but Wolf is still a great kind of like piece of satire mm-hmm. and I wish it had been Buck Henry mm-hmm. you know who had been in there and writing that if they were going to do that type of thing and not pitch it as like part of this other thing but you know as, as we've clearly alluded to Stoker is not just the Dracula guy he wrote an incredible mummy story mm-hmm. and he wrote a lot of other really good stories and most of them just have not subsisted over the years they haven't um, met with as great acclaim as dracula and so that's got to be fun right about i mean like even though it's before he kind of connects anyways you have this what you already know that's the beauty right Mm -hmm. of working with with characters whose estates can't sue you and that you can use is i've been down this road before yes it is great a public domain (laughs) kind of usage of them as um as characters as, as fictional characters that what you know very much informs how you want to tackle your story. And so you can go at it from any angle because there's funny stories about almost everybody. There's um, tragic um, events in almost every important person's life. And then there's the work. And so when you're able to, to delve into that and when you're someone who is – and if if you haven't gone at this point on you know, taking out your iPhone and, and started checking – you know, on on Stephen's credits and and put them on your to do list. You should because they're all. It's there's a lot of really good stuff. And we're going to talk about some of the other stuff he's done too, but that you get a sense of some people are very clinically attached to a kind of somber and sober and morose telling of a person's life, and they miss out on telling an interesting story and what I thought was great in you telling about well, what I want to do first is I want to set my story down then I want to bring in you know if there's any kind of um, you know symbolism or message that I want to put and I put that in after and I think what's great is that the more you know about historical figures you hit a point where then you're like okay I need to dial this back I need to only cover a little bit of surface because I've got if it's a movie 90 minutes to two hours to do this. If it's a mini series, you know, you're talking three or four hours. And if it's a comic, it's something that is probably going to be just like in screen, in, um, in screenplay writing, 
one page is about one minute. Mm-hmm. And so when you've you've written something that's that's ninety pages, it's 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 an hour and a half experience. You are really writing a screenplay. But since you've also written plays, like theatrical plays, how does what you're able to convey to an audience change in when you're writing for theater versus writing for film versus writing a comic, which in many ways goes back to theatrical, but you just have an unlimited budget. Well, I mean, it's a it's a, a lot of stuff I wanted to answer in what you said, so we'll, we'll go there. But the interesting thing is about the historical veracity and the research and keeping it human. Mm-hmm. Um, because what you know, uh, and and write a different uh, writers will tell you different things, but I do think it's a big responsibility mm-hmm. to represent a historical figure uh, because uh, and a lot of people say, well, you know, you know, if people really this is fiction and people have to understand that, and if they really want to research someone, there are biographies out there, there are documentaries, so we have the artist has to creative license. I say that may be true, but the fact is. That, you know, I'm just guessing, but, you know, 98% of the people who see the cat's meow will learn everything they're ever going to know about William Randolph Hearst or Charlie Chaplin from watching this movie. Yeah. They don't they don't have it in their bandwidth to do anything else. So that's going to linger. And I feel there's a certain responsibility to it. And and I think as an artist, I say, you know, you should be able to find inspiration and you should challenge yourself to make drama, to make comedy, to make suspense from the facts and to and and if you want to deviate you can deviate uh, as this term that you know people call a slippery slope but uh, the spirit of the truth right um uh but the fact of the matter is as much as you want to stay close to the facts of their life and what you read once marion davies and charlie chaplin go in a cabin and close the door you're a dramatist yeah you know there is no recording of that conversation and hopefully people understand that um you know, and even if it's if it's in a yeah. film, and Marion Davies mm-hmm. and Charlie Chaplin walk into a room and shut the door, and if the camera lingers on that door, mm-hmm. you're saying something without saying something. Right, right. Absolutely. So everything is actually a part of that narrative and yeah. a part of that tale. I mean, part one of the things that what I do find, I think, in my opinion, everyone may not agree, as morally um, wrong. Uh, even though Ron Howard seems like an awfully nice guy, and I and I like a lot of his films and filmmaking. Um, is uh, Cinderella Man, mm-hmm. where they had to, in the in terms of good storytelling, create a villain. Yeah. And so, and I forget the name of the boxer, um, but the, it, it all hinges. Was it Max Schmeling? No, it wasn't Schmeling. It was uh, the, uh, the the whoever the boxer was who he's going to fight. Schmeling mm-hmm. was the Lewis Schmeling famous stuff, but I don't believe it was Schmeling. Um, so he's coming out of retirement, and he's going to fight. He's, he, he's going to fight this guy. And so, uh, and the, and the f- fact was that somebody died in the ring mm. from a blow, you know, after a, blow, a, a, a punch this fellow through. Yeah. So in the movie, this guy is f- a braggart and running around in front of the press conferences and he's bigger than Russell Crowe is and mm. the kids are terrified about their dad going back in the ring and... And he's essentially saying lots of lines along the lines of, I killed one man, I'm going to kill your daddy, I'm going to kill you too. Yeah, strutting around, strutting around. He's like, he's like around. Krugren yeah, from, yeah. Know, from Highlander or something. And, and this, this boxer's father and family is still alive. Uh-huh. And as most boxers will tell you, and most boxing historians will tell you, no boxer is proud when somebody dies. Oh, Mancini's yeah. career was over yeah. after he won a yeah. fight where someone died. He, yeah. was, he was so... 
shocked and horrified mm-hmm. that and blamed himself mm-hmm. when honestly the referee should have called that fight yeah. way before the end of yeah. the fight. And yeah, anybody who knows boxers knows that it's not something that they're happy with, that it's it's a very deep-rooted psychological problem. Yeah, so here's this huge Hollywood awards season movie where the uh, most likely the only depiction of this boxer yeah. is ever going to be shown to any audience anywhere. There's probably no bio uh, written biographies on him. Right. And so here's the family watching this movie where the man who they all know was haunted by this. They all know had great pain um, and heartbreak over this event is is shown as as, as this monster yeah. bragging about it. So that, uh, because Akiva Goldsman and his his you know writing wants a villain and somehow convinced Ron Howard to go down that that rabbit hole with it. So that I don't that I I, I feel like if you can't mm-hmm. take what's there and make something compelling, then maybe the story should shouldn't be told uh, because because of all what you're saying that the law protects the writer. Um, once you're a public figure, you surrender all sorts of rights. Um, not yeah. from libel if the person's still alive, um, but um, but once they're dead, you actually can libel them, uh, yeah. and so so I feel like that you know with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. And so well, you co- name Akiva Goldsmith and, yeah. and Ron Howard, who of course were guilty of sins of omission mm-hmm. in the case of another Russell Crowe film, Beautiful Mind, oh, right. which completely fails to address the fact that the the main character was gay. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a huge part of this guy's <laughs> life and, and right. some of his, his psychological problems sure. of him not wanting to really come to grips with um, who he thought he was and who he knew he was. Mm-hmm. And um, and that, But I, I also have heard in conversations with Akiva Goldsmith that he didn't want that being presented to somehow be connected to mental illness and, you know, for, for some people to point a finger and say, how come you're saying this man who's having problems, you know, coming to grips with his homosexuality, that, that this is, is a form of insanity. And, and of course it's, it's hard to argue those kind of silk degree points, uh, in a two hour movie, mm-hmm. but, um, I yes, think it but was a skilled screenwriter could have exactly <laughs> who, right? wanted to, who wanted to tackle it, who yeah. wanted that, you know, if you don't know how to talk to people who help, who right. can help you, yeah. um, t- talk to some, uh, and is that movie a hit? Yeah. We don't know. You know, <laughs> is that movie a hit in in the service of of the truth? Possibly not. And I mean, that really shows you where where a lot of Hollywood lines up is that mm-hmm. they don't like you say it's it's not as important mm-hmm. to them if if it's an Oscar winner, if yeah. it's a holiday season, if it makes a lot of money. Right. And of course, in the case of Cinderella Man, it's a movie didn't really make that much money, right. anyways. Right. Yeah. Um, but I so in terms of uh, the uh, cross platform, I mean, the you, you get down to real fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Which is when you go from uh, a screenplay, because I reverse engineered usually, and even the credit on the film says screenplay by, for Cat's Meow, screenplay by Stephen Peros, Peros from his play. Mm-hmm. It's actually the other way around, but that was the way the Guild, you know, I'd written a screenplay, then turned it into a play, right. but because it was first produced and uh, presented professionally and publicly as a play, that was the way the credit um, reads. It has, since, it has since resulted in it being published by Samuel Friends, and it's been in six country so far awesome. so it's been a, it's been a, a fascinating but one of the things i learned when is that you know there are no close-ups in theater yeah so everything i wrote in the screenplay that implies to the director you know we, there are a lot of stolen private moments in the mm-hmm. screenplay and in the movie of the cat's meow it doesn't work on 
stage. You don't unless you suddenly Although, turn off all if you turn off all the lights and hit a spot on somebody, or if you project. And mm-hmm. I think what's kind of interesting about plays is mm-hmm. that the idea of, of I think what we grew up on mm-hmm. and, and the stuff you know the off Broadway stuff is just very you know simple, stripped down, mm-hmm. not very extravagant. That even now, that now especially even in the small theaters, there's a, a great degree of sophistication that's going along with the presentation of, of plays that create an experiential thing, not unlike what Jonathan Demme was doing with, um, you know, swimming to Cambodia mm-hmm. and doing those, um, you know, Spalding Gray um, performances, which are very much a man sitting at a desk, but he's drawing your attention away from himself by using projections in the background. Mm-hmm. And if you do have the ability to have a camera on on stage that captures that mm-hmm. close up of an actor and, and broadcast it up above everybody that they look up and they see it. And maybe it's too ambitious. Maybe right. it takes away a little bit well, of the then people are gonna yell, people are gonna yell up at the stage. If you want to make a movie, go make a movie. Damn it, leave uh, us alone. You know, in so, some places they will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I remember when I did my first play when I first came to L.A. and I have a, a, a dear composer friend, and he said, "Would you like me to do the score?" And I was like, "Score." Theater doesn't have scores. The words are what make you feel. I'm not going to underscore a stage play. <laughs> I did why I'm using because I had I wanted some transitional music, yeah. and, but I, I I couldn't. I did, to me violated what what theater you know is all about. Yeah. And so I um. So yeah, there was there was a little bit of how do I convey this, but but I was able to also create something that I wanted to lean into that you can't yeah. so much in film, which is this whole um, notion of Eleanor Glynn, the great sort of Jacqueline Suzanne of her time, uh, who who is on board. Uh, and she, uh, whenever anyone talks about someone having it, that, that special something, that star quality, sexual something, it, that comes from El- uh, Eleanor Glynn, whose book, mm-hmm. It, was written in the 20s and very much... Um, about Clara Bow, kind of? Um, the movie starred Clara right. Bow. But no, the movie was just about that. Um, it was a you know fictitious uh, novel. Yeah. She was sort of this lovely, lurid novelist from her time. And since you said Jacqueline Suzanne, yeah. I have yeah. to say, dolls, dolls, dolls. <laughs> Jacqueline Suzanne, of course, wrote Valley of the Dolls. And then uh, Russ Meyer wrote an unofficial, right. completely unrelated <laughs> sequel called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which uh, or he, he directed it. Roger, yeah. um, Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert wrote it. And um, it was just like gonzo, crazy, out there, um, explicit, amazing housewife type novels. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, and I guess what, what would you compare after that would be Jackie Collins. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. So what I was able to do was, because uh, I'm a huge fan of um, All About Eve, which which Cat's Meow is it's inspired by, and it, it has this sort of narrator, um, or rather opening, closing um, from the George Sanders character, mm-hmm. um, fascinating uh, character. Yeah, we and do two hours on him. Yeah, and so I, uh, I thought, well, since the screenplay has Eleanor Glynn, sort of, she opens and closes it, and she's in a sense recollecting the story. I was able to use her as this uh, wonderful tour guide in the play, and there's, um, uh, I was able to sort of, there's one moment, one key moment where everything just freezes in tableau on stage. Except for Eleanor, and she addresses us. She's and the you narrative yeah, device, yeah. Yeah, and so she steps in almost at, at midpoint to check in nice. with us. And, and, and I was able to give her a really, uh, I was able to write a, um, um, a monologue for Up Front, um, uh, which I really like, but you, you, you couldn't really do in a film. Mm-hmm. So I was able to lean more into language um, uh, in the play um, 
dial back the close-ups and find challenge myself to get across what I needed to get across. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, but you can have private moments, and and as any good director, I didn't direct the stage play, but you know how to pull the uh, audience's eye yeah. towards two characters in the corner. But again, you have to think that you can't just do a piece of theater that's only going to really work for the people in the first you know uh seven rows I and mean, that's yeah. what they used to say back everybody back, says seven yeah. rows it's funny it's like it's always seven <laughs> rows yeah well that's what they used to say about uh when jessica lang had her broadway debut in streetcar back mm-hmm. in the 90s i guess it was or early 2000s um it was not well reviewed but but Basically, the word on the street was, but if you were in the first seven rows, it was a great performance. Because she was giving a film performance. Right. And uh, and if you were anywhere further back, you missed it. Married to one of the greatest playwrights <laughs> yeah. you know, of his generation. So, so it's kind of ironic. So that was the difference there. Now, when you move from with Stoker and Wells going from my screenplay to um, graphic novel... Um, it's it's trying to exercise even more economy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's trying to that balance between maintaining a, a, what you hope is a sense of wit and intelligence, but also you have to think in terms of the pages and um, the frames and and also the the sixty four pages, which winds up being about fifty seven pages of book. Yeah. So um, so I'm in the midst of that now. Um, but one of the things you do learn over time as a writer of any form, of an artist of any form is craft. Yeah. And so you can't learn uh, talent or imagination. Um, so you, can, but you can learn craft. And yeah. so one of the things in craft and in the repetition of, of writing is is editing. And, um, and so for me, it's yeah. not daunting. Um, I did it even for the, the six page sequence that we used I trimmed it down um, from what was there, and that was easy to do uh, yeah. because I knew the visuals were going to carry, um, uh, and I knew what what was you know just I have this this constraint again. I, I don't get disappointed by it, frustrated. I get excited by it. Good, yeah. you're giving me something to work with. You're giving me yeah. a challenge because montage is a special film thing mm-hmm. that uh, montage allows you to tell. A lot of story in a couple of sequences. Mm-hmm. And of course, comics are almost the exact opposite of that, mm-hmm. <laughs> where you're actually stretching a moment yeah. across multiple panels to give a sense of importance or of impact. And so um, when you are editing yourself back, which is very different mm-hmm. from editing backwards from a screenplay in, in comics, it's sort of like, are you already seeing the pencils that are coming in? You're like, I, I we need to put a little bit more attention on this this sequence here because I love what I'm getting back and I want to see him really explore this other thing whereas if we're trying to stay on on pace just like you would in a screenplay where you know you need something at eight minutes at 15 minutes at you know 45 minutes mm-hmm. whatever that um, I probably just gave a TV setup, right. <laughs> a film setup. but that um, when you're doing it in a comic book there's a there's it's not the same as it used to be but you do have to have certain beats if it's monthly with a graphic novel you don't Graphic novel, you can tell a whole tale in, mm-hmm. in one finite um, um, serving. But then you sort of also get to pick your page count. like, And that's going to relate around, if it's still what I remember it being, um, for a long time it was, it was eight-page books, eight-page mm-hmm. groupings. Now it's four pages, so you can actually finish on a on a multiple of four mm-hmm. but if you've got advertising then you can pop in right. pop in advertising and maybe it's advertising for the next issue or the next kickstarter but you can you can play with that otherwise if you don't hit your four if you're if you're one page over and you've got three pages left 
then you can use those three pages to do a stylized intro page or a right, about right. the author's page. <laughs> well, what I what I'm doing here is because this is a new foray for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Dan and I were talking about this last night. You like to be the dumbest person in the room. That's yeah. actually the better place to be. Yeah. So rather than barging into this world and say, I know what I'm doing, uh, I went first to. Uh, Two guys who I've known since seventh grade, um, Billy Tucci, who created She, um, mm-hmm. and um, who's who is a self-made um, kind of superstar in in this world, especially indie comics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, that he has since revitalized Sergeant Rock for for DC, mm-hmm. and 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 he did uh, a Harley Quinn thing. Uh, so he's uh, he's re- so he steered me towards a great guy uh, named. Um, J.C. Vaughn, uh, who's a, a vice president of publishing at Overstreet, mm-hmm. and um, he, um, no, at Gemstone, that does the Overstreet comic book guide. Mm-hmm. And uh, J.C. is uh, also a, a writer, and so he came on as editor, general manager. He helped me budget this. He's nice. He's been a, a, a good guide for all of this. And the you artist- just mentioned something mm-hmm. no one has ever mentioned in the almost 100 episodes <laughs> that we've done about budgeting yeah. a comic, about yeah. budgeting a graphic novel. No one has ever brought this up before. <laughs> and I think it's because you come at it from a different industry yeah. Yeah. and you understand that there are costs because yeah. you know there are costs in other industries. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes when people are, are tackling comics or graphic novels as their first project, um, because it's, it's this labor of love that's been building in them for decades of this one thing. And at any cost, it will get done or it opens up the door for them to work for somebody else and they abandon that project. Right. Well, what happens is I, I was involved with a Kickstarter for something else, entire, something entirely different, a sizzle reel for a, a, a digital series. And you do have to budget, uh, first of any kind of production, mm-hmm. and it started with the budget for the production. Um, but you have to budget for your Kickstarter rewards. Yes. Um, uh, you have to budget for shipping and all of that stuff because your what, hours. What, there's so many yeah. people. I see these campaigns and, and, I, and, and I, I applaud them for, for what they're what their their low goal is and uh, but i know when i look at their rewards column they could be having to reach into their pockets um to help fulfill you know the money they get and if they're able to great um but you know or that stuff was gifted yeah right (laughs) so yeah to me we we created a real legitimate working budget you know everyone's not going to do things for free and right. so uh, but they're also not charging premiums that's the other beautiful mm-hmm. thing about people mm-hmm. who come to comics and publishing from mm-hmm. Hollywood is they don't expect anybody to work mm-hmm. for free yeah. <laughs> whereas everybody else in comics expects artists to do stuff for spec right. all the time well yeah I mean though the, you know the, the, though I uh, try to present myself with a, with a youth, youthful pallor I, I've, I've been around a little while my, my friends and my the artists I know have been around a little while mm-hmm. and, and I feel like we're we're you know past working for free but 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 i also believe we want to show our investment yeah. in our love and our passion it's for this match. project so everybody here is doing anything anyone is receiving for their labor and everyone is laboring and will be laboring once we're fully funded um everyone has consented to do it uh, because they love the project at, at well below anything a that significant they, they, yeah. discount rate. Yeah, yeah. yeah for, for sure. But uh, that's also, you know, the joy of working on what you want to work mm-hmm. on. So that's a decision you get to make as a mm-hmm. creative person and say, you know, I really want to do this and I'm willing to do this for this because I'm getting the reward of doing what I want to do mm-hmm. as opposed to working for somebody else and them telling you exactly what they want. You're doing a page passing and then like, nope. Yep. Next one. Oh, it's it's funny. Yeah. It's funny. I remember when I, when I first was budgeting, you know, my fr- independent films I wanted to make, and you want to raise money for your movies, and mm-hmm. and, and I did that, and, and I did that for my first play out here, 
you know, everyone's like, I'm going to buy, I'm going to put in zero for me. I'm going to put in zero for me. And uh, every, when you meet people from business, they're like, don't put in zero for you. Not because you should make money. It's, it's, it will show that you are someone worth investing in. You value yourself. Yeah. Um, they don't expect you to work for free. People who are investing in your business don't assume you're line item. You're doing a line item for yourself that's zero. So don't yeah. put a line item for yourself that's zero. You're a, you're somebody, you know, that um, a value. Mm-hmm. You're going to create the, the the reason they're putting it in is I think you're a value and you're going to create a great work. Um, so put some you know something in again with Kickstarter. You want, you don't want you, you want people to know you're not abusing that. Yeah. Uh, you're you're putting that in just to literally just cover your time in some sort of minimal way mm-hmm. but i mean barry orkin who's an extraordinary artist and did the six pages of ink ink and pencils that you'll see on the the sample i mean that is labor intensive he has yeah. to step away from other work he is a father of a beautiful boy and he's mm-hmm. got a home and he's got a mortgage and so but he said can, can it at least be this little amount and we said sure of course barry yeah. i mean and and so because he loves it yeah and uh, wants to get it out there but it, it, it also means, you know, bread on, you know, he's, 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 he's turning away from other things but to also, do it. But also, and it's an important thing for an artist who's in, who's in that type of situation, is that if there's money up front, then there's at least this belief that if this happens, that they get hired to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of people who are working for free and on spec, they can produce a lot of work and there's no guarantee right. or even inclination that it should be the case that if it gets funded that they go with it. Oh, yeah. And so um, that this is, if, if you take nothing else <laughs> yeah. from this interview, and I hope you do, that um, that when putting together Kickstarters and putting together any kind of crowdfunded thing, that you absolutely have to value what goes into things, including the time spent packaging the rewards. Mm-hmm. Because if you fall behind... Because you didn't account on how much work you have to turn away to be able to dedicate to fulfilling a kickstart, yeah. then you're going to deliver stuff late. You're going to get a bad name, and if you ever um, try and kickstart something else again, you know word's going to spread that you didn't fulfill. Mm-hmm. And I think that proper budgeting helps take care of a lot of those problems because you've already said, okay, we've budgeted for this, so I know. And then, then if it doesn't happen, I mean, then it's it's on you. You know, it's yeah. like no. I mean, I didn't I didn't budget for some sort of facility to do this for me. I didn't want the the crowdfunding people to pay for that. I'll be sitting on cross legged on my yeah. floor watching some Irwin Allen disaster movie while I, yeah. you know, <laughs> stuff envelopes with copies of Stoker and Wells for two hundred plus so far. Yeah. Um, um, people who have been kind enough, and I do want to with stress the morning after yes. playing in the background. <laughs> but they, I mean, the, the, the what a Kickstarter, because now I'm, I'm towards the end of my 30 days, mm-hmm. and it is just so eye-opening, it is so heartwarming mm-hmm. to see f- uh, friends and friends of friends and family and s- total strangers mm-hmm. step up and, 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 and show their support. Uh, the levels of generosity o- o- often stun you. Yeah. Um, um, and then you, you, you almost want to, qu- you almost question it. You know, yeah. you say, really? Am I and worth th- all yeah, of this? Yeah, and yeah. Then they, and then they write back saying, no, are you kidding me? Of course. I yeah. so want to help you. I mean, um, Eddie Izzard, who played Chaplin in uh, The Cat's Meow, and of course he's known for so much more than that. Um, uh, you know, he was one of my emails, one of my many emails. Um, and um, and I'm not so much in touch with him all that much lately, although I, I do call him a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, he wound up just, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, boom, he just put in a, a great huge stoker. amount. Yeah. He'd be a great <laughs> he would, stoker. He would be a great oh stoker. my gosh. He put in a huge amount. He wound up tweeting and putting on, on Facebook. 
Uh, I thanked him profusely. He said, you, yeah, use me all, all you want to promote it. Um, and then, as if he has nothing better to do on a Saturday night, last night I get an email from him. How's it going? You know, it'd be real crap if this thing doesn't, if you have to turn all, <laughs> give all the money back. And uh, so I say, for Eddie, we have to do this. We yes. have to get to the, and we're very close. We're at uh, over 85% uh, funded at this moment, ticking up, ticking, always ticking closer. Mm-hmm. We're, in the, we're in our rally to the finish line. Just Tuesday the Tuesday the twenty first. At um, what time? At noon. At noon. Okay. Yeah. Noon Pacific. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so three o'clock on the East Coast. Yeah. But noon Pacific. Well, shout out the address for that Kickstart. Yes. Well, um, the the address is long. Basically, if you just put in the word Stoker S T O K E R, it will come up. Don't put in H G Wells. A million things will come up. Mm-hmm. But or or the whole title Stoker and Wells with the word and. And Wells is W-E-L-L-S, um, and it'll come up. It will definitely come up. My name is Stephen Peros, P-E-R-O-S. I'm the only, if you search my name, it'll come up because I'm the person hosting it. The URLs are very long, so, right. uh, but it's Stoker and Wells. And, on Kickstarter. Yeah, on Kickstarter, um, and the page uh, the page will be there. And you'll see you'll see Barry's gorgeous art. Talk about everybody invested sweat equity for this. There's, no one got paid on this level, but Barry did six pages of art. He did a gorgeous cover, which he also colored. Mm-hmm. He, uh, Billy Tucci, I have to say, did a Kickstarter exclusive variant cover going a totally different direction than Barry's, which makes it a great companion piece. That cover is uh, there. The original art, uh, Billy uh, was willing to auction off, which he doesn't. Uh, his original pencils for the cover, uh, not auctioned off, put it as a pledge reward. Wow. As soon as he posted it for 800 bucks, snapped up. Totally yeah. snapped up by one of his fans. We have a lot of great rewards on there. I mean, well exceeding. I mean, in terms of the value, uh, I actually think they're great investments. Yeah. Uh, you can't, I mean, you don't say investment for Kickstarter, but those, the, the, you're not, because you're not technically investing, uh, but... But what we're giving you, I do believe, is worth more than what you're pledging. So it's, yeah. it's consider it a pre-order. Um, Getting something awesome, and then you get a book mm-hmm. a few months later. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, it's it's very exciting. Uh, it's it's great to be a part of something. I know when I put uh, when I pledge to Kickstarter, I love that I'm a part of something. That's what yeah. crowdfunding is all about. Yeah. Um, so I'm hoping people will take a look, fall in love with it. Um, we, you know, we hope to entertain, but also to inspire. I want a kid reading this to, not that H.G. Wells or Bram Stoker needs my help in being thought cool, but if they do, I think if some kids see a couple of writers and think they're cool, maybe that little inner voice in them that wants to write, that is scared, that doesn't know what that means in whatever pressures, societal pressures they have, might actually start to scribble themselves. Yeah. Um, whether that leads to profession or whether that leads to just peace of mind and a happy life, mm-hmm. uh, that would be a great journey. And if people wind up if, if a kid winds up reading it, a kid of any age, and picking up uh, a Stoker or Wells um, a book or short story, um, then that would be a great, uh, great value too. And if you just want to read it to have fun and be entertained and see a thrilling, hopefully uh, smart um, adventure tale, uh, it'll work on that level too. Awesome. Hey, man, Steve, thanks for coming by. Absolute pleasure. I'm, I'm Thank glad you for we were able me. to hook this up. Yeah, for sure. It happened on the internet. <laughs> so I always say this, you know, and again, I want to uh, give another shout out. Stoker and Wells, um, Stephen Peros, Kickstarter. It's a really great, worthwhile project. You know me, I never hard pitch any kind of Kickstarter stuff that hasn't already happened. So I'm very excited about this and I want to see this come to fruition. So um, I'm going to be posting about this um pretty steady in the next couple of days across our social media and I hope that um, you can share it and send it to other people who you think are going to appreciate it but also another lesson in in how to get things done and how to how to make your your transition into making your your 
particular dream come true is in producing, is in doing things, and it's in finding good collaborators and in feeling strongly and believing enough in a project that you are willing to open it up and offer it to the world. And if you can't afford to do it with your own money, there's no problem in saying, hey, you know what, I've got this amazing thing. Why don't you guys come in and, and if you feel like you would enjoy seeing it, help make this happen. So uh, again, I want to thank Stephen Peros. Uh, I'm, I'm going to sign off. This is Matt Kennedy. You've been listening to Pod Sequentialism. You too, advertisers can reach this primary demographic. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole. It's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.